0: Well, good morning, Terra Nova family. And by that, I mean across our network. Um, it's a blessing for me to be able to share from God's word with you this morning. And while I'm not with you live, I nonetheless carry the sense that I am with you in the sense I'm thinking of you. Um, I know that I've not been able to see you as frequently, especially in Terra North, North Adams as well as in Troy, uh, just for obvious reasons over the past several months. But I miss you guys and I'm glad to be able to share in the Advent season with you, at least in this way. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our time of exploring who our God is through the different names that we encounter in the Old Testament, and especially in trying to consider how do those point us and usher us to the fulfillment of those names in his son, Jesus, uh, that we celebrate at Christmas. Today, we're going to be taking a look at God's name, Yahweh Yaira, and I'm just going to jump in at the front end and start talking about what that name means in particular and its etymology, and then we'll get into the story of Abraham. And how God reveals himself to Abraham as Yahweh Yaira. Yahweh Yireh means the God who sees and who provides in light of what he sees. He sees your needs and he provides what you need. The word Yaira actually is a standalone word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to mean to see. In fact, it's most often translated to see. Sometimes it means provide rather than those words being um, Uh, only one or the other that's applicable here, it's actually a combination of both. So when we move it into the English, the word provide or provision is actually a compound of two Latin words, pro uh, meaning forward or beforehand, and vision more obviously meaning to see. So literally the idea here is to see beforehand. And of course, provide then is just the verb form of provision. And so this is the action of God, seeing beforehand what you need and providing for that. Of course, it's important also to understand that this is a compound name. So at the front end of Yahweh Yairah is Yahweh, one of God's many names that we see in the Old Testament. But this one's distinct from the other names um, in, in a special and an important way. For example, Elohim is another name of God. But that name more generally refers to God in relation to the nations at large. Whereas Yahweh refers to the nature of God, to want to reveal himself specifically to his people, to enhance that relationship with his people. It's a name that's particularly applicable to God's covenant relationship in the Old Testament with Israel and today the church. Because he is Yahweh Yaira, emphasis upon Yaira, we can count on God to provide. He's a God who will provide the home that we need um, for our families, a God who will provide the job that meets your financial needs, A God you can count on to provide the community that your soul needs, the confessors in your life that you need to be able to entrust with your deepest struggles and with your sin, the help that you need for an addiction, the resources that you need for depression, the guidance you need to discern between a decision that's good and a decision that's best, the courage that you need to risk rejection, and the list could go on and on. He's a good provider. But because he is Yahweh, Yaira, emphasis upon Yahweh now, the God who reveals himself for the sake of expanding his relationship with his covenant people, this is about more than just a God who practically provides. It's not just about, you know, uh, God being like a vending machine who contains your particular needs and dispenses of them at the times you need it. That's too impersonal for what's being communicated here. God's provision serves a twofold purpose, not just to provide for our practical needs, but also to deepen our relational intimacy with him. And the context where that name is encountered for Abraham and for us is exclusively in the context of faith. And that's really important and it's gonna be a point of emphasis today. Let me say this right now. This is kind of the big idea for today and it's a principle that's broader than just our passage at hand. But the nature and character of God never changes. Okay, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In our faith, your faith and mind does not activate Yahweh Yireh as being true about him. That is already true of who he is. But our faith, what it does, like with Abraham, is it administers this reality to our heart in a way that brings a personal experience of God as being our provider. We'll talk more about that and I'll unpack that as we go. Let me give you a simple analogy. There may be a person you know whose reputation precedes them as being a kind and generous person, but if unless you until you turn to them in a time of need, until you uh, experience relationally what it means that they're generous, it's just theoretical. It's just a hypothetical to you. What God wants for us is for us to experience him relationally, not just to know his reputation, but to actually know him personally. And that only happens in the context of faith. All right, so let's explore that through the lens and through the journey of Abraham. As you've already heard read uh, in Genesis 22, God approaches Abraham and he asks something of him that's just unthinkable. Uh, He asks him to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loves. This is the son of promise, by the way, the one through whom this great nation is supposed to be made. So it's the understatement of the morning for me to say, At the very least, this had to have been an incredibly perplexing moment for Abraham. There had to be many apparent contradictions that he wrestled with in this moment as God gave him this instruction to sacrifice his son. There was the apparent theological contradiction, because we know our God says, thou shalt not kill. There was the emotional contradiction. This is his son whom he loved. And God, by the way, knew that because God actually said in the context of his instruction, your son whom you love. That wasn't lost on God. Abraham had to wonder, how could he ask this of me when he knows how much I love Isaac? There was the relational contradiction. How is this going to help and benefit my relationship and my marriage with Sarah, not to mention my son Isaac? And then there was the apparent contradiction to the promise itself. How is God going to make a great nation through Abraham if he was to follow through and be obedient to this command? Of course, you and I have the benefit of hindsight. Um, But if we're honest, I think we probably still would really wrestle with this passage or maybe do wrestle with this passage. We still find it to be uncomfortable. We know our God to be a God who is the, uh, the giver of life, a God who cherishes life, a God who finds life sacred enough so that he demands life for life in Genesis 6. We know him as a God who is supposed to be for us, who's working all things for our good. This doesn't feel like a good thing for Abraham or certainly for Isaac. Yet most of us, even if a little reluctantly, can accept this because we have hindsight, right? We know the outcome of this story. We know God stays Abraham's hand. And we also know what God was willing to do later with his own son. Abraham did not have the benefit of this knowledge. He did not have the benefit of knowing these things ahead of time. So his head must have been Spinning, his heart aching. I, just, I was thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with the will of God. If anybody else was to have known what it was, to have sweat like drops of blood, it would have been Abraham as he dealt with the anguish in these moments. And I just want to say at this point, that's a legitimate response. When God calls us to something that is hard, um, we are allowed to wrestle with that. If we look nowhere else, look to the Psalms to see that example. But we also have to be careful that we don't let the code word of wrestling just become a cover for disobedience. And so I think it's interesting. We don't see a lot about, revealed here, about the emotional turmoil Abraham must have been going through. As a father who loves his son and is being asked to do this, that's just implicit. What we do see here is, in the end, what's most important, which is that Abraham's obedient. And to me, this is the most remarkable example of obedience in the whole Bible, the cross notwithstanding. But we have to also see this in light of the journey that Abraham has been on to this point. He's an old man. This is the end of his life, We're only a few chapters from where we read about Abraham's death. And this is the culmination, the culminating event in a long string of events that God has used to test Abraham's faith. <clears throat> a Couple examples, early on in Abraham's journey, one of the first things God asked him was to leave his home a known, and a comfortable place For an unknown and an uncomfortable prospect of going to a land God was promising to make a great nation out of him that was yet to be. But Abraham said yes. He went. He exercised faith. We also know that there was an exchange between God and Abraham in which he promised he would make a great nation out of him um, through his marriage with Sarah, but they hadn't been able to have kids. She had been barren. They were in their 90s at this point, yet he believed God and he was declared by God to be righteous as a result. I think the speculative question for the day is, in this instance with what God was asking of him, would he have been obedient right out of the gates if he had had a son when he first met God? And it's speculation, but I I have to believe that perhaps the answer to that is probably not. And the reason why I even bring that up is to say this. God develops our faith over time. And why that can be encouraging to us this morning is, Wherever God is calling you into a test, wherever he's given you instruction that he's put before you right now, God has prepared you for that. And he's equipped you with the resources that you need to be able to walk in faithfulness and in obedience to that calling on your life. There are inevitably other events that we read in scripture and outside of scripture that required faith of Abraham, but none so great as take your son, your only son, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering but here's the thing. The greater the command or the instruction in terms of the faith that is required, the greater the opportunity there is to experience God relationally. That's what God was doing here. He was wanting to take Abraham to that next level of depth of intimacy with him. Listen, any believer you and I like can intellectually assent to the idea of God as our provider. Um, I don't know of a Christian who would not say on some level, yes, God is provider. But we don't know God as Yahweh Yaira until we face something that's impossible and we walk forward in it by faith. Um, No one knew that more intimately than Abraham because he stepped into a situation in which he was made to be utterly dependent upon God to provide, to somehow preserve his beloved son, and to somehow fulfill the promise of a great nation through Abraham, despite Abraham's commitment to follow through in obedience to what God had called him to do, to sacrifice Isaac, which would seemingly eliminate those prospects. It's interesting because the author of Hebrews gives us a divine insight that we would know no other way, because we don't read about it in Genesis 22. He he gives us some insight into what was going on in Abraham's heart and mind, what he was thinking in these moments. When the author says in Hebrews 11, Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back and here's why that here's why that is important here's what that means Abraham didn't even have it in mind that one of the ways in which God might provide is through sparing him from having to follow through Abraham was so committed to obedience in this instance that he was only considering the ways in which God would be faithful to his promises after he sacrificed his son Isaac, which is evidenced by the fact that his best guess as to how God was going to do that was through raising Isaac from the dead. It's remarkable faith. But hear me, it's a kind of faith that's developed over time. It's a kind of faith that rests on a track record of seeing God's faithfulness through previous acts of faith. And it's a kind of faith that's based in relationship. And so as Abraham's hand is raised now with his This knife over his son, ready to come down, undoubtedly both son and father filled with, to some degree, terror still, turbulence and anguish in their hearts. Just as he's about to come down, God stays his hand. He lifts his eyes in this moment from Isaac, where they'd been trained, probably in a last-ditch effort to somehow affirm to Isaac of his love for him and that things were somehow going to be okay. He raises his eyes, and he sees caught in this thicket in front of him a ram who God had given to replace his son Isaac on the altar. And so God provides. He provides in the 11th hour, the last minute, but he provides. You see, God knew from the very beginning what it was that Abraham needed. He knew not only that he needed this test to bring him into greater intimacy, to come to know him as Yahweh Yaira in that personal way, but he also knew the practical provision. God provided what was needed at the precise moment that it was needed, both for Abraham's spiritual and practical needs. I love what author and pastor Tony Evans has to say as he kind of imaginatively draws out what likely was going on in this scene beyond the details we have in Genesis, where he says this Abraham didn't hear the ram trying to get out of the thicket until he finished obeying God's command. In fact, while Abraham was going through his trial and climbing up the mountain on one side, God had Abraham's solution, the ram, coming up the mountain on the other side. He was going to make a match at precisely the right time. I do believe that that's the way that God works. So practically, the implications for that, for some of you, for example, maybe, maybe you've lost your job, and by faith, you're pursuing leads for a new one, but you seem to be coming up empty. But God knows, and is arranging, there's someone else who's leaving their job that you're a perfect applicant to fill. Or maybe you're brokenhearted over one failed relationship after another, your most recent one feeling like that was the one. But by faith, you continue to pursue and trust God, and he's been preparing someone else for you, and maybe he moves that person from across the country or even the world, and you meet, right? He's working behind the scenes as we trust him by faith. Maybe it's you nearing the threshold of your ability to cope with some excruciating pain in your life or spiritual weakness, but help lies just around the corner at the precise moment that you need it, both spiritually and practically. But you've got to persevere and not take the easy way out, even if persevering looks like a mustard seed of faith. Please see this. Please see where Abraham encountered God's provision as Yahweh Yireh. It was on the path of faith, and it was on the path of a willingness to sacrifice Precisely at the point that it hurt the most that he came to know his God, as Yahweh Yireh. I think it's safe here to say that Abraham would never have gotten this provision had it not been for faith and following through on that faith. If he had rejected that command from the beginning and said, no, Isaac's too precious to me. If he had turned back halfway up the mountain. If he had turned back at the, at the point of raising that knife even and said, no, I can't do this. If he had not followed through He would never have encountered Yahweh Yaira in this life-changing way. Now, granted, I think obedience takes place in these small little steps. um, And we see that even evidenced early on in Genesis 22. There are all these verbs, action steps, expressing faith on Abraham's part. Like, he rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took his young men and Isaac, he split wood, he arose again and went to the place God told him. These are all baby steps in the direction of obedience. But hear this, the faith that led Abraham to follow through in his heart was not just a faith that God was sovereign and could provide. It was a faith born out of a greater love for God than anything else in this world, even that of his beloved son. It was a faith that believed that God was so good so holy and so great that he could even bring Isaac back from the dead, but that even if he didn't, God would still somehow be right, and this would still somehow be best. Listen, I think many of us, myself included, can walk 99% of the path of obedience much of the time, and then turn back, and even have convinced ourselves, well, we were faithful for the most part. But it's the follow-through where we actually encounter God relationally, It's seeing obedience through to the end where we actually encounter him for who he is in a personal, relational way. And the kind of faith, the kind that we see in Abraham here that leads to that follow through to the end in the kind of circumstance that Abraham found himself in isn't just one that believes God is able to provide. It's a faith that believes the one who is able to provide is better than anything that the world has to offer. Let me just say this again. Understand here that the nature and character of God does not change. He was Yahweh Yaira yesterday, today, and he will be forever. Your faith doesn't activate that as being true about God like a light switch flipped on just because you believed. It's always been true about him. But what your faith does, what following through in obedience does, is it administers that reality into your life in a way in which you experience that personally and relationally with God, and not just theoretically. That's what happened to Moses on this mountain. If you don't believe this to be true from your own experience, then believe it from those who've gone before. This isn't just a story of something that happened to somebody else. It's a true story that happened that God preserved for you and I so that his reputation would precede him, so that we would come to hear about it and so that we would take him up on it and trust him in it and come to understand how good and loving of a God he is and how good of a provider he is. Of course, there's more going on here. And as we near a close, I'd be remiss not to point out that there's a profound symbolism In this event in Abraham's life that's taking place, God is foreshadowing to Abraham, and we see clearly in hindsight, God telling us that one day he would provide in a very similar way for our greatest need. See, you and I are Isaac, and that 11th hour exchange was not an animal which could never atone for our sins. It was God's own son. And the other difference is that God would not stay his hand from that final death blow upon his son. And that's why we can say with confidence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But as we consider Yahweh Yaira in light of Christmas this year um, and in light of the gift that Jesus is, let me just say these final words. Don't make the mistake that God was stoic through the sacrifice of his own son here. It would be an easy one to make. That somehow this was a cold, transactional event meant to purchase our get-out-of-jail-free card. It was free for us, but it wasn't free for him. See, everything we've considered that was going on in Abraham's heart today, the anguish, the pain, the internal turmoil that he was going through, don't assume that that wasn't God's experience when he allowed his own son to be sacrificed on the cross for our sins. You ever wonder why Abraham, after this event, was constantly referred back to as the friend of God? I think it's because Abraham, perhaps uniquely in all of history, understood what it was to have to sacrifice your own son. And what is a friend if not somebody who can empathize with you and who stands by you when you otherwise would feel alone? Because they understand what you've gone through. You see, God endured that pain out of his, out of his love for the world, out of his love for you and I. In Advent, we refocus on what it means for Jesus to be a gift, rightly so. And so as we consider God's name, Yahweh Yaira, the one who sees our needs and provides for those needs, certainly we worship Jesus because in him, God has provided for our greatest need. But maybe the the layer of gratitude that can be added this year as we consider this is not just the benefit that came to us as a result of that sacrifice, but the cost that that came at to God. A cost that Abraham came to understand only through obedience. See, God has and will continue to provide many things for you and I over the course of our journey of following after him. He's a good provider. He'll provide the friends that you need, the relationships you need, the home that you need, the resources that you need. Not always in the way that you think, but he will. But God's love for you isn't perfectly captured by any of these things. Not like it is in the provision of his son that he gave as a lamb slain for the sins of the world. Because in the gift of Jesus, God demonstrates not only his ability to provide, but the extent to which he's willing to go to provide it. That is why he can be trusted. When we understand this, we come to understand how generous of a provider it is that we have in our God. And we can understand then why Paul would make the argument in Romans 8, that if he, God, did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Terra God bless you guys. And this Christmas, uh, as you enter into meditating on who God is and what he's done, may he richly enhance your experience of what it means relationally for him to be Yahweh Yaira in your life, the God who sees your needs and provides